This is our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. It's an in-depth study. And we are seeing the beginning of the church. And we see it start in Jerusalem. At the end of the book of Acts, we're going to see it in Rome. So it's the spreading of the church from this very localized area around the world. And it starts in the passage we're covering today when the disciples and 120 other people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they are now empowered and he indwells them. And there is a sign that they are given for the presence of the Holy Spirit. As I said, this is the birth of the church. This is the empowering of the individuals that make up the church. This is what John the Baptist said when he said, I baptize you with water but there comes one after me and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's the event that we are covering today. Now this event is wild. They're gathered together in an area that we do not know. It's not in the upper room because we know that there are 3,000 people who get saved at the end of this event. We aren't covering that today. We're covering the initial aspects of the event. But we do, it's probably in the temple. They probably have a room they're meeting in in the temple area and people hear what's going on and 3,000 people get saved. So what happens is, is why they're gathered together and they're doing what Jesus told them to do and they're waiting, the Holy Spirit suddenly comes upon them. And there's first this rushing wind, which is unique to the situation. As far as I can tell, there's no other place in all the scripture where we see a rushing wind come into a room when people are filled with the Spirit. But there's this loud noise of this rushing wind that comes in. And then there are tongues of fire that are over each individual's head, which is kind of weird. First of all, what's a divided tongue of fire? We'll talk about that today. It's not as complicated as what you might think, but it is a sign of the presence of God. And I'll show you that. And then they speak in tongues. But when they speak in tongues, this is not like anything else you find anywhere else in the Bible. They speak in the languages of the people who are there. This is a feast. People have traveled everywhere to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, rushing wind, tongues of fire. Then they start speaking in languages they don't know. And then the people start noticing and they say, are we not all from all these different countries? And how come we're hearing them speak in our own languages? They knew they didn't know the languages. So this is a known language that they speak in. You don't ever find that again in the book of Acts. Never do you find anyone speaking in a known language. And the end result is that after the first message is preached, 3,000 people get saved and baptized on this initial day that the Holy Spirit is given. Now, we're only covering the first four verses. And what, what, what exactly is going on here, Peter explains it because when he walks out, people are like, what's going on here? And so Peter gives them just an explanation. This is what's happening. So I want to read Peter's explanation to you. This is Acts 2, 14 through 19. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. His argument that they're not drunk is that it's only the third hour. He could have been like, we don't get drunk, so that he could have said that, but instead, it's only the third hour. These men aren't drunk. 
Then he goes on to say, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He now quotes prophecy from the Old Testament where God says this. He now quotes Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. The church period is the last days. This is the birth of the church period. We are still living in it today. There are the latter days of the last days, but he says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He doesn't mean believers and non-believers. He means believers. In the Old Testament, not all believers had the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, kings, prophets, judges, David was filled with the Spirit. Saul was filled with the Spirit. Samson was filled with the Spirit. And you remember after he got his hair cut, it says that he stood up and he did not know that the Holy Spirit had left him so the Holy Spirit could come and go for them. Now, what he's saying is all Christians will have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. That's context. You say, well, it says all flesh. Yeah, but let's read the rest of the context. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So miraculous things are going to happen. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And then here it is. On, and on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So anyone who is a servant, a true servant of the living God is going to have the Holy Spirit poured out upon their lives. And then he goes on to talk about super things, supernatural things that will happen. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heavens and in the signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. Now, Joel goes to the last days, showing that from the moment the church is, has the gift of the Holy Spirit until the end and the last days when God's going to wrap everything up, the church is going to have the gift of the Holy Spirit operating in it. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit operating in our church today. So we pick it up in the beginning of our text. We're covering the first four verses. We find in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come. Pentecost was one of the seven feasts that there were for the children of Israel. It's interesting. They were commanded to feast seven times a year. There were spring feasts that were clustered and there were fall feasts that were clustered, but it made seven of them. There was, the first one is Passover. This is where they sacrificed a lamb, smeared the blood on their doorpost and were delivered out of Egypt. And they kept this memory meal or this remembrance meal of Passover and Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. The second was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which started the day after Passover and went for seven days. You didn't eat anything unleavened. Unleavened was a type of sin, so it was a type of getting sin out of your life. Jesus was in the grave during the beginning of Unleavened Bread. The day after the Sabbath, the day Jesus rose from the dead, was the day of first fruits for the barley harvest. There was an early barley harvest, then there was a late wheat harvest, and so on the day of first fruits, they would take barley heads and they would wave them around within the temple as a sign, we're giving you the first fruits. Whatever you provide for us, God, the first fruits is yours. Then they counted 50 days from that day. So you have one day after the, the Sabbath and then you count, count, uh, you count 50 days, seven weeks, and you come to the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, which is the day this is, 
there are two things that Jewish people celebrate, and they celebrate them to this day. Number one is the first fruits of the wheat harvest. The day Jesus rose from the dead was the first fruits of the barley harvest. The wheat harvest was 50 days later, and you have the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So God's going to give the Holy Spirit on the day of the first fruits of the wheat harvest that would show that these 3,000 people that get saved on this day are the first fruits of the harvest that's going to come in during the church age. Hundreds of millions of people, maybe billions, are going to give their lives to Christ. We've, we've seen it over the centuries and we're seeing it today. This is the first fruits of those who will give their lives to Christ. 3,000 people being saved on this day. The second thing that Pentecost represents is the giving of the law. Why? Because back when they had the first Passover, they smeared the blood on the door and they were delivered out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God and the Red Sea was opened and they were delivered over on dry ground. 50 days later, Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai and received the law, the day of Pentecost. He received the law. Now you have them gathering together on the day that they received the law, on the day of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and they are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when the law was given, remember a few things that happened. Number one, on top of the mountain, Moses goes up on top of the mountain, and there's smoke and fire and thunder. And the word thunder could also be translated voices. Smoke and fire and voices. And the people in the camp trembled because of the presence of God on the mountain. So when the law was given, there was the presence of God up on the mountain when that time was given. Now, do you remember what happened when Moses was given the law? While he was being given the law, the people got impatient. They made a golden cow. They began to dance naked around it. And so God says to Moses, your people, he disowns them for a minute, your people are committing idolatry and revelry. Go down and take care of it. Moses goes down and takes care of it and 3,000 people die. This is when the law was given. The law's given lightning and thunder in the presence of God, but the law has no power to save. And the end result is that these people doing the very thing the law was telling them not to do, 3,000 people end up dying. Now we go to the day that we're talking about. Now there's a rushing wind. There's noise like there was on top of that mountain. There, there's fire over the heads of all of these men like there was fire up on that mountain. There's voices, the tongues speaking in voices like the thunders, which can be translated voices. And on this day, the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit's given, if you know the rest of this story, Paul, Peter stands up, gives the first message, and 3,000 people get saved and baptized. So you have 3,000 people getting saved and baptized at the giving of the Spirit, and you have 3,000 people who are killed at the giving of the law. There is a contrast that God is replacing the law with the leading of the Spirit. No longer are we going to read the law to find out what God wants us to do, but we are going to be led by the Spirit. Now let me give you a passage that says that, that actually tells us that this is happening. This is Galatians 5.18. Remember, in the region of Galatia, there were these legalists, these Judaizers. Legalists were Gentiles who were telling people they had to become Jewish to be saved. The, the Judaizers were Jews who were telling people you have to get circumcised, you've got to keep the law to be saved. Paul's really mad at them. 
Paul says to them in the very beginning, I marvel that you have so soon turned away to another gospel, which is not even another gospel, because the word gospel means good news. They were teaching, they were adding and perverting the gospel of Christ by telling them you have to do some work to be saved. And Paul calls it that. He says, you are perverting the gospel. And so Paul says in Galatians 5, 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. So what was happening on the day of Pentecost in the first century was a replacement of what was happening in the law when the law was given. And I often say this, but it's so true. I am very glad that I am not under the law. When people ask me, is there any parts of the law that you, that you keep? I always say, this is a little tricky, but I'm gonna tell you no. We, we could say we have to keep the moral aspects of the law. Thou shalt not steal, shalt not murder. Those are the moral aspects of the law. We certainly don't have to keep the ceremonial aspects of the law, the dress codes, the dietary aspects of the law. We don't have to keep any of that. However, it's not that I'm keeping the law. When, when I'm going, I'm not gonna murder people. I'm not going, the Ten Commandments says don't murder people, otherwise I'd murder that person. It's now, I'm living by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is love and because I love God and I love you, then I'm not gonna take what's yours. I'm not gonna steal from you. I'm not gonna, bear, I'm not gonna lie about you. I'm not gonna slander you. Which the, it's the don't bear false witness is one of the Ten Commandments. It's not that I'm endeavoring to keep the commandments by not slandering you. It's that I am walking in love. And even Jesus fulfilled all of the law and became my Sabbath. So when someone asked me, do you, and, and the Sabbatarians love to do this, those who believe that you're only saved if you go to church on Saturday, they like to say to, to, to us, do you keep the Ten Commandments? And our answer is almost always like, well, yeah, it's the Ten Commandments. But I always like to say, no, I don't. Now, what I just explained to you is why. I don't keep the Ten Commandments because I'm walking in the Spirit, because I'm walking in love. I, I don't endeavor to keep the Ten Commandments, and I don't think you do either. We do it because we're walking in love. Now I'm blowing their minds a little bit and I'm also cutting their feet out from under them because where can they go? You don't keep the commandments? You're thinking this. So they, all, they get all upset and go after that. And, and I end up explaining to them, Jesus fulfilled it all. And he even became my Sabbath. So Jesus is my rest. And that's Hebrews chapter four. If you wanna look it up yourself, Jesus is our rest. If any of you are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that's the first two things that are happening here on the day of Pentecost. We're getting these events that are like the events of giving the law, they're similar, and the spirit, walking in the spirit is replacing keeping the law, which is so good. And we also have the first fruits of the spirit for the church taking place on the day of Pentecost. So let's move on. Then it goes on to say the rest of verse one, they were all in one accord in one place. This doesn't mean they were all in a Honda. And as long as I get laughs on those dumb, corny jokes, I'm going to give them, all right? Just so you know. Um, there was a sense of them being of a oneness. And there needs to be a sense in the body of Christ. Even though there might be slight disagreements, we agree on the main things. And there's a oneness. We are a part of the same body. You and I have a connection. So they were all in one accord in one place. We don't know where this place is. We think it's the temple, not the upper room, okay? And suddenly... There was the sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. This must have been a shock to them. 
Suddenly a wind comes in, they're in a place, and this wind comes in, and their hair's getting all flowing around, and it's a rushing and a mighty wind. Well, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for wind, breath, and spirit are all synonymous. It is only the context that helps us to know, is he talking about wind? Is he talking about someone's breath? Or is he talking about a spirit? So this is the Holy Spirit blowing into this room, into the lives of the people who are there. As I said earlier, we don't see this happening again. As far as I know, I, I always hate when I say, this never happens again, and then somebody comes to me and goes, except here, and I'm like, oh yeah. So as far as I know, I don't see this happening again. We see the room there in shaken in Acts 4. We'll talk about that when we get there, but never this particular event. Now, Jesus said that the Christian is, well, let me read it to you just to get the sense of what he says. So he talks about the Holy Spirit being like a wind that moves in our lives. Listen to what he says. This is John 3, 5 and 8. Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The water here is the amniotic fluid. He's talking about the fleshly birth. Unless you're born of the flesh and then born again of the Spirit. This is a second experience. You've been born of the flesh because I can see you. That had to happen to you. But have you been born again of the Spirit? Has the Spirit caused you to come to life and to have that new life inside of you? So he goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, I can look outside, and on a windy day, I can see debris blowing by. I don't see the wind, but I see the effect of the wind. I can stand outside, and I can look at the top of trees to see if there's a breeze, because the top of the trees are blowing more than the bottom of the trees. So I'm, I don't see the wind, but I see the effect of the wind. So I can't see the Spirit in your life, but I will see the effect of the Spirit in your life. You're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. You're going to be empowered to do the work that God calls you to do. It becomes evident to the people around you that the Spirit of God is inside of you. So this is the sign of the, the, the Holy Spirit blowing in. Then it says in verse 3, Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire that sat on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them evidence. Now, there appeared on them divided tongues as of fire. That's just a strange thing. And if you've ever seen pictures of this, people trying to draw it, they always look weird. And I imagine it was weird that over, over each individual's head, this is why it says divided. Why is it a divided tongue of fire? Because it's not just one giant fire over everybody. It's divided over each person. So each person had a tongue of fire. And maybe they're like looking at the rest of the people in the room and you guys have a little fire over your head and maybe you're like, is there one over my head as well? You know, this is the tongue of fire that's over each of them. Why a tongue of fire? Because that's the shape that fire makes. We say fire licks the air. The, as you look at fire, there's tongues that shoot off of the fire and that's what they're called. So this is divided tongues of fire over each person's head. What did that represent? 
in the Old Testament, having fire somewhere, supernatural fire, was a, was a sign of the presence of God. Have you heard of the Shekinah glory of God? Shekinah is the word for dwelling, so the Shekinah glory would be the glory of God dwelling. However, that phrase is never used in the Bible. But the phrase, his, uh, the, uh, the glory of the Lord, is used often. And often the glory of the Lord is revealed by fire. Let me give you some examples. When Moses saw a bush burning and not being consumed, he walked up to the bush and out of the bush spoke God, take, and the angel of the Lord, they're both there, take your shoes off for the place you stand is holy ground. Why was it holy? Because God was there. Wherever God is, it becomes holy. And so he was to take off his shoes. And the bush burned because we're going to see fire is a sign of the presence of God. God was there in that bush. It's a sign of his presence. In the giving of the law, there was fire on top of the mountain. That was a representation of the presence of God. People were afraid because God was there. There was a pillar that led them in the wilderness, a pillar by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the Bible tells us God's presence led them in the wilderness, which is kind of a foreshadowing of God's presence in his Holy Spirit leading us because we are led by the Holy Spirit. God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, which is different than the tabernacle. They built a tent of meeting. Moses would go out and meet with God there and God spoke to him from a cloud and Moses would get the glory of God on his face, which I love. Moses went into the presence of God and glory got on him. And he had to put a veil over his face so the people wouldn't see, whoa, what's going on with you? Walking around, Mr. Shining Face. And then the glory would fade and he would go back in and he would get glory again. Could God be saying to us that when we get into his presence, there is, we, we share in his glory. I want to talk to you before we're done about how God's glory works in our life today. Also, the mercy seat had the glory of God above it. The mercy seat is the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. And if you remember in that movie, there's one point where they show the Ark being led out in front of armies and lasers are shooting out of it. And they talked about how the Ark defeated armies. That never happened. That's not in the Bible. It's in the movie, but it's not in the Bible. Instead, they sent the Ark out to fight against the Philistines and the Philistines capture the Ark. They end up taking it into a city to their god Dagon. Uh, Dagon is a fish-headed god. Uh, and the next morning, Dagon's fallen over. And, and the next morning, his head's broken off. His hands are broken off. And people in the town have gotten rats and hemorrhoids. You can read it yourself. I'm not making it up. And so they send it to another town and rats and hemorrhoids break out in that town. And so finally, the people are like, let's get rid of this thing. And they send it back to Israel. All right. Now, when Eli, the priest, heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured, he's a big man and he fell backwards on his chair and he broke his neck. And when he did that, he cried out, Ichabod, the glory has departed. So there was a way in which God met with his people above the mercy seat, probably in some kind of cloud of glory that was there. Now in 1 Kings 8, 11, this is the dedication of Solomon's temple. It says, 
that the cloud of God's glory became so thick that they couldn't go in and do their work. The priests had to stop working. The presence of God and the cloud was so thick at the dedication that when they went in, they couldn't do their work. They had to wait until that glory lifted a little bit before they could do it. And sadly, in Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord in a cloud of bright light leaves Jerusalem. The children of Israel have rejected God. They've gone into idolatry. They are no longer living for him. They are following the gods that were in Canaan around them. And God leaves. And you see very dramatically the glory of God in a light in a cloud leaving the temple, going out the east gate, and then leaving Jerusalem. And the, the glory of the Lord had left for hundreds of years until the day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus when this room that they're meeting in probably on the temple mount is filled with a rushing wind and tongues of fire alight over each of their heads which would signify the presence of God in their lives. In the Old Testament, not everybody got filled with the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, every genuine believer has the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's the presence of the glory. That's what this represents. No wonder Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you. I have the Holy Spirit in me right now. He's inside of you. That's different than the non-believers that you know. No wonder we are to live differently. And no wonder, like Moses had to undo his shoes because he was on holy ground, no wonder God brings holiness in us. And we find conviction from the Holy Spirit for our sin. And we want to get things out of our lives. And there's a danger that we could have our conscience seared with a hot iron that we are no longer under conviction for things that we're doing. And we pray, God, reignite our conscience and allow us to be able to bring you that holiness and purity because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you a summary of what we've talked about. The Holy Spirit is given to the church on the day of Pentecost, giving us a new way to be led, replacing the law, and giving us the first fruits of the harvest during the church age. The Spirit was represented by a rushing wind and divided tongues of fire over the heads of each person, representing the presence of God in each one of their lives. And they were given a supernatural gift to speak in tongues, a language they did not know. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on tongues today. I'm going to do that next week. We're going to see tongues in the book of Acts next week, what it's about, what it is, what it isn't. But this is unique. As, again, as far as I know, this never happened again. And, and I'm going to say this really confident. This never happened again, where they spoke a language that they knew. This is unique to this particular baptism, the first initial baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the Azusa Street Revival, uh, people, this is in the 1905, early 1900s, uh, people began to speak in tongues. They thought they were speaking languages. Some thought they had the language of the Chinese, Mandarin, and they went to China to be missionaries. And when they got there, the, the Chinese were like, I have no idea what you're saying. You think they would have tested that before they took the boat ride over, right? Because those days you took a boat over there. This was supernatural. Why would God allow them to speak in other languages that are known? This is not an unknown language. That's later on. 
Why would God allow them to speak in languages they didn't know? Because he's empowering them to go into all the world and preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's just a sign that the gospel is going to be spread around the world in other languages. Here we are talking in a language that wasn't anywhere near being around. And yet we are speaking of the things of God in the language that we have today, and that's what they represent. Now, three things in closing. Number one, they were waiting for the Spirit when He came. This is just an encouragement to wait on God to fill you with the Spirit, and those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not faint. They will run and not be weary. We are, will be empowered, not by might nor by power, the Bible says, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Allow God to empower you with the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, you already have the Holy Spirit in you. But as you do work for Him, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Number two, the Spirit was given and people got saved. Part of what happens in revival is purity. People all of a sudden start to think, you know, I've been living this fleshly, carnal kind of life and I want to give purity to God. That's part of what happens in revival. But another thing that happens is that people start coming to Christ. It's like, it's like a fire that spreads and 3,000 people got saved. And when the Spirit works, there is a guarantee the gates of hell will not prevail against you. It doesn't mean every person's going to get saved, but it means there will be people who are being saved. The third, final thing, is they were empowered to do something they could not do. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to do something you cannot do. This is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, how you know the Spirit is upon you. The Bible says, in our weakness, he is strong. D.L. Moody had a fifth grade education and literally turned the world upside down for Christ as an evangelist with a fifth grade education. They would try to call him Reverend Moody and he would always correct them. It's Mr. Moody because he had no formal training. But God used him in ways that he didn't use people with former training. Why? Because God uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. And so who knows how God will empower you or how God will use you, but it will be for his glory. The Bible says, do your good works in such a way that when men see your good works, they glorify your father who is in heaven. Stand with me and pray, would you? Father, thank you that we're able to take time today to consider these events and what they mean in the giving of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we can say to you, we want to be empowered by the Spirit. We don't want to do things by the power of the flesh, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. And so we ask you now in the name of Jesus to empower us to do your work. Lord, we're not looking for anything funky, we're not looking for anything weird. We're simply looking for you moving in a very real way in our lives and in the lives of people who are around us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.